Hi, I'm Robin Birkin and welcome to the Fertility Warriors podcast, a place for women struggling to conceive to find emotional support, conception advice and real talk. To me, being a warrior means true glory is in rising every time we fall, having the courage to be afraid and being ready for whatever challenges cross our path. So welcome warrior, you're on your way. I promise to support and guide you on every single episode. Let's begin. Hi warriors and welcome back to another episode of The Fertility Warriors. I'm so glad that you're tuning into this episode, but you might be wondering, why Robin, why are you recording this episode about life after infertility, my breastfeeding struggles. And I really wanted to start inserting maybe one episode a month on life after infertility, because I am sure that you are hoping that very soon you too will be in the club of falling pregnant and then need these next steps from someone who you trust. But not only that, I want you to learn from what lessons did I learn on my fertility journey that really helped me through the next stages and learn from that. So many people when they're in the Fertility Warrior Intensive come back to me and say, whoa, I really am so glad that I've learned this before I feel pregnant, okay, because this is such valuable information. So I do want you to listen to this information before you have your BFP, and I want you to understand this information before that happens so that you can feel really prepared and confident and calm on the other side of infertility or when the next steps happen. So today I want to talk to you probably about my biggest challenge in motherhood and probably the, like the most rockiest time that I've had and I'm probably going to cry because like it's still I still feel like it's quite a sad time for me but one of the hardest things for me was when Olivia was just born so if you go back over the episodes you'll see I have an episode about Olivia's birth it was called my placenta previous story that when I was at my 20-week ultrasound, they discovered that I had something called major placenta previa. And I want to let you know that it's actually not as uncommon as you think for there to be complications with pregnancy. And I definitely believe that it was because there might have been some scar tissue or something like that there that it just from my journey with infertility that it kind of latched onto or, you know, things have been messed around just a little bit too much in there. And it's definitely not a death sentence, but mine was right smack bang over my cervix. So cervix is obviously where your baby comes out. And so, and it didn't move, like it wouldn't budge. And so I had a 90% chance of hemorrhaging before Olivia was born. And we're going to do a separate episode about how I remained calm through that. And I, you know, it wasn't anything I learned in pregnancy. It was everything that I learned before I fell pregnant. But I want to share with you the story of, you know, like what happened after Olivia was born. So I had a 90% chance of hemorrhaging and that happened. So at 37 weeks, I had a spontaneous bleed and I was prepared for this eventuality. I rushed to the hospital. Livy was born straight away. They were waiting for me in the corridor to rush me to have her. 
And I then spent the night in critical care, which is kind of similar to intensive care, but it wasn't like I was dying. Well, I don't think it was. It was in the same kind of area as intensive care, but it wasn't intensive care. It's called critical care. And at 8 p.m. that night, so I was really groggy. I was on fentanyl and all sorts of drugs. I had a blood drainage tube directly into my body, so I have a little scar there above my C-section scar, and I was out of it. So she was born at 4.15, and at about 8 p.m., Ross came to me and said, They've whisked Olivia off to the special care nursery. She was having trouble breathing. It was like she was gurgling and making this funny, like half choking, half gurgling kind of noise. So that's where she got sent. I could not breastfeed for the first 24 hours because I was like, I was Snoop Dogg high. I was super high. And then the next day I was like, okay, she's in special care. This is fine. And I started pumping. And there was nothing wrong with my supply. When I had Chloe, my milk didn't come in for 10 days. I'd had a small postpartum hemorrhage, obviously had a bigger hemorrhage with Olivia, so I don't know how that happened. But sometimes if you have a hemorrhage during the birth, then it can affect how soon your milk comes in. And my milk with Chloe didn't come in until 10 days later, uh, which was hard in itself because, you know, like I was desperately trying to feed her we were mixed feeding with a bottle because like hardly anything was coming out of me and then all of a sudden it came in and we were kind of fine from 10 days but Olivia's story was really different to that so I was in hospital with Olivia for eight days she was in special care for five or six days and they suspected so I came I was pumping every three hours and I was kind of in the room by myself we told people that we didn't want any visitors at the hospital because Number one, I didn't have Olivia with me and no one could go and visit her unless they were the mum or dad. And so there was no point really in anyone visiting me. So I was on top of my pumping. My milk was fine. But then they decided that I may have an infection, which was shit house. And it was bullshit. I did not have an infection. They were just being overly cautious. They needed to be overly cautious. Like it was the right thing for them to do that if they suspected I had an infection that they kept me away from other patients and special care babies. But it meant that I couldn't go and visit my own daughter. And so I spent two to three days separated from her and alone in my bedroom. Ross was looking after Chloe, so he couldn't spend the whole time with me. And... So I was just sat there on my own, separated from her and pumping to feed her. But then I couldn't even like take it to her. I had to ding the buzzer and someone would take it to her. So I didn't really get the chance to breastfeed her until she came to my room. And because I'd had a hysterectomy during their birth, because her birth went a little bit pear-shaped, they kind of just said, just stay in hospital as long as you need. And I said to them, well, I'd actually like 48 hours with Olivia to just see if anything's going on, how we're meshing together before I get discharged. So if you have that ability, really advocate for yourself and have a think about what you need. This extends to your fertility journey. It's so important to keep what you need in mind 
and be really firm about it. And they said, you can leave now if you want. I was like, no, thank you. I would like to stay here a little bit more. I'd like to recover a little bit more. And my recovery with Olivia, although I'd had a cesarean, was much better than when I had Chloe, when I had an episiotomy and a natural birth. And I attribute some of that to the rest that I got. So you obviously don't really want to repeat what I did. But that said, my recovery was better. My milk was great. I wasn't as exhausted the first time around. And I'll definitely do an episode on hospital tips. But the first time around, I just had a constant stream of visitors in and out. I didn't feel like I got to bond with her. I didn't feel like I had adequate time to rest because people were just coming at all times of the day, even though we gave them times to come. So she finally came to me and she was such a teeny, tiny, cute little thing because she didn't weigh that much when she was born. She was about 2.9 kilos. So I think that's, I want to say that's dead on six pounds. I can't quite remember, but there was something not right. And I knew that something was not right because she wasn't draining my boobs. When you have a child, your boobs kind of swell up and they get really hard. And one of the ways that you can tell that your baby's had enough to eat is that your boob kind of goes right down and then it feels really, really soft and squidgy again. Whereas when it feels a bit hard, that means that there's lots of milk in there. And sometimes your baby will drain one boob, sometimes they'll drain two. But so long as they're you know, draining one or two and not crying a lot because they're not hungry, then that's kind of fine. And she was, she was like crying a little bit. She wasn't draining my boob. And I kept saying to people, I don't think this is right. She's not draining my boobs. And it was almost like it fell on deaf ears. No one was listening. They told me to get a nipple shield in case it was something wrong with me. And I was like, it it doesn't feel like that's the case. And I don't have very sensitive nipples. Some people's feel like their kid is brutal with them. I've never felt that much, but she wasn't draining my boobs and I it just didn't feel right. I'd be feeding her. She'd be there nursing for an hour, an hour and a half. And when you have a baby, usually they'll nurse for 45 minutes and then they'll sleep for like an hour and a half or something like that. Newborn babies basically eat and stay awake and then go straight back to sleep. So they'll feed for 45 minutes, then they'll sleep for like an hour and a half or two hours, and then the same thing will happen. Sometimes you'll get 15 minutes out of them, but then they'll just want to go back to sleep, which is perfectly fine. But I'd be feeding her for between an hour and an hour and a half, and she still would, like she'd be really tired by this point. She was still trying to nurse. Um, And so that was really hard. And then I would pump. I'd try and put her down. She'd already be overtired, so she'd be a bit grouchy and wouldn't want to go down. And then I would pump and then I would put it in a bottle and put it in the fridge. And then what would happen was then I would nurse her, then she wouldn't be full. So then I would give her the bottle, then I would try to put her to sleep, then I would try to pump. Then it would be nearly time to feed again, but I'd only just pumped. And it was just this crazy kind of cycle. And this is for just two days in the hospital. And I kept saying to people, this isn't right. The lactation consultant was just like persevere and there are, there's a lot of hospitals now that are very pro-breastfeeding, which is completely fine and awesome, but we also need to have access to support to help us do that and a range of people. So here I was and I had some lovely midwives who helped me as well, but the paediatrician came to visit on the last day. 
And I said, okay, we're ready to leave. And he said, nope, you can have to stay another 24 hours because she hasn't put on any weight. And I was like, I know she's not putting on weight. I'm trying to feed her as much as I can. And then I'm feeding her the bottle, but something's not right. And I instantly got this lecture about how formula is 99% the same as breast milk and you shouldn't deny your baby formula, you know, if that's the case. And I was like, I was really pissed off and I'm still jacked off about that because there was nothing wrong with my supply. I was pumping enough. I wasn't starving her and I was, I'm no problem giving her formula. This is the same, you know, Chloe needed formula when she was born, but that's what happened with Olivia. So I had no adversity to giving her formula. He gave me some weird strategy of something that I needed to do which I tried and then she, I guess, stayed still or put on a little bit of weight and we were able to go. And after that first 10 days with Chloe, I nursed her exclusively until she stopped nursing at around 12 to 14 months, probably closer to 14 months. She was like a really nursey baby. Like she would just cuddle up and it would be beautiful and really peaceful and quiet. She would have nursed much longer if she had the chance and I wouldn't have minded, but for the fact that both my fertility specialist and my obstetrician told me that as soon as I get two periods back and as soon as, you know, like definitely by the time she's about a year old, I needed to wean. And a lot of mums with secondary infertility come back to us and ask this question about, can I still be breastfeeding and doing fertility treatments? Some specialists will allow you to do that. However, the majority will ask you to wean before you try again because the fertility drugs do cross through into breast milk. So I then weaned Chloe. We then went on the bandwagon to try for Olivia. So I envisaged that nursing Olivia would be this peaceful and calm experience like it was with Chloe. And like it was really nice with Chloe and just a really calm moment to take time out of the day. It wasn't like that at all, partly because there was a two-year-old going fucking crazy around me, not wanting to sit still, not having the patience to deal with this, not feeling like she wasn't getting the attention, but also because Olivia was struggling to feed. So this all continued once we came home. And so we were in the hospital for about eight nights and then we came home and in Australia we have these things called a child health nurse who comes to visit. And so the child health nurse asked if she could come and I was like we've literally only just got back from hospital can you wait until maybe day 11 or day 12 after she's born so that's what she did but in between that I was like something is not right here and I was having to pump after every feed I was trying my darndest to nurse this baby beautiful little innocent tiny little baby and feeling like you know I had just had a hysterectomy after a crazy birth. You know, I just needed to keep my head afloat in this kind of crazy time. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get help with this. And if I have one message out of this podcast, it's ask for help, then ask for more help. Where are you in your fertility journey? Are you keeping your head above water and if you feel like you're not just get help okay whether that's joining something like the fertility warrior intensive whether that's going to see a therapist or a psychologist whatever that is seriously 
don't just suffer, just get help. Would you like to learn what some of the latest research says about how to drastically improve the success rates of IVF and IUI cycles? I bet you would, because if you can drastically improve your success rates, and I mean like double your success rates, then that means hopefully less IVF cycles, less time, less cost, and less heartache for you and a quicker chance of having your baby in your arms in the future. If you would like to know how to double your chances of conceiving, even if you are over 35, and if you're going through IVF, IUI, or even if you're trying naturally, then I would love you to jump into my free masterclass where I'll share what some of the latest research says about maximizing your IVF success. So, Come and find me at robinburkin.com slash workshop where you can sign up to receive instant access to my workshop, robinburkin.com slash workshop. So I called at the last minute a lactation consultant to come to my house. So she came to my house on a Sunday and straight away picked up that Olivia had a lip and a tongue tie, which was preventing her from being able to latch on properly and essentially like drain my supply. So she said to me, you know, like you don't have to rush into this. You don't have to. There's plenty of women who persevere with it and try just different positions and the baby kind of learns how to feed a bit that way and don't be worried if she doesn't put on as much weight as they expect. And I was like, okay, she was really nice. She was really gentle. She picked up that lip and tongue tie straight away. If I had not got her help, I would have spent days, weeks, months sinking lower and lower into this really sad state. I would have continued on this crazy, overwhelming and tiring, exhausting path of trying to feed her, then pumping, then doing this. And I was starting to get to the point where I was just pumping more and more and not even trying to worry about trying to nurse. And I've always thought fed is best, but then in the back of my mind, like, yeah, but breast is best. And, you know, I had people who have by choice stopped breastfeeding at three months and I've always been like, well, why? Why would you do that? But this experience truly opened my eyes to fed is best. And not only that, though, mama's sanity is best. You need to be okay for your baby to be then okay. And formula is almost like it's so close to being a match with breast milk. Nope, it's not 100% different, but it's such a great match. And how blessed are we that we have something that has all of the different components that make it so similar to breast milk. We are very, very lucky to have that opportunity available to us. And I only think about, you know, what people did in very old days, they would have to get a wet nurse. So like another lady who was in that sort of stage who would have to just come and feed their baby. So I got this lactation consultant in straight away. She picked that she had a lip and tongue tie. So she couldn't really open her lips and open her tongue enough to be able to properly nurse. The next day, the child health nurse visitor came and I just said, do you know what? I want to do something about this. I actually don't think I have the capacity to continue like this. And again, it's this whole concept of, do you know what? 
admit where you are and just get help. Like you don't have to suffer through this. There are so many people, so many avenues you can choose to go down when things aren't working for you. So I looked up a dentist that was in our local area that came highly regarded that was able to, I don't know what they call it, like cauterize or blast the lip and tongue tie. And that was like a really hard thing to do because I had at two weeks old, she was exactly two weeks old when this was done. They obviously anesthetize it. The anesthetic wears off after a while and two weeks old is too young to give pain medications like Panadol or Benadryl or anything like that. So she kind of had to experience that pain. But on the same token, they say that lip and tongue ties can also affect all sorts of things like speech production and things like that. And she does actually have some speechy problems now that we're getting rectified. But I went to see this dentist. We got it done. He had a look and it was a really severe lip and tongue tie. It may well have affected her feeding foods. It may have affected her speech later on. And I just thought it would be better for us to address it sooner rather than later because she wasn't really putting on as much weight as she was supposed to. Even trying to drink formula, it would all kind of leak out the sides of her mouth. That wasn't really a perfect solution in itself anyway. And I was like, I was literally struggling. I could feel myself going down this rabbit hole of, you know, trying to manage all of these things, including a two-year-old whose world has just been rocked, who's gone from being the complete center of attention to now being sharing what used to be 100% of mum's time. So she had her own challenges. My husband runs his own business, so he had to go back to work and he just needed to get fixed sooner rather than later. And, you know, as hard as it was for me to put a little baby through getting that kind of some laser stuff done inside her mouth, it was for her best interests as well as the entire families. And so that was a really hard 24 hours when we got that done. And, but we got that done and we got home. You know, that night was really tough. It was at about 11.30 was when the anaesthetic wore off and she was just crying and crying and I was crying thinking, you know, what have I done now? (laughs) This is really hard. Like, why? And so I was just kind of rocking her and trying to comfort her. You know, it was still a bit painful for a little while after that, especially because you kind of, this sounds completely horrible but you have to kind of rub that wound a little bit every day so that it doesn't then like heal over again and then cause the exact same problem but that didn't mean that magically feeding was instantly better either if that takes a while she's obviously got way more movement of her mouth than she had before so she had to learn this whole process again she was obviously in a bit of pain so it was still very much the same scenario of me trying to feed, then, you know, trying all these different positions and trying to take my time whilst also being really conscious of a two-year-old that needed her mum to not be nursing and things like that all the time. And then, you know, trying to pump, trying to feed pumped milk or formula and the same, you know, scenario overnight. And that continued on for a few weeks. And the phrase that really got me through and I talk about this phrase all of the time, was survive the day, then survive the night, 
then rinse and repeat. And I would just say to myself, like, just get through the day, just get through the day, just feed through the day, get through the chaos of two children for the day and then just take a breather and then just try and get through the night. And I would set these mini goals for myself and, you know, in terms of breastfeeding as well, I set the goal of, okay, if you can just make it to six weeks, like just persevere until six weeks, just keep going until that time, keep going until six weeks. All you have to do is get to six weeks and then we'll just, if it's not working, we'll just switch over to formula. And I love the concept of setting mini goals. So wherever you are in your journey, maybe you are still trying to conceive and maybe you just want to make it through to the next retrieval. Maybe you are trying to conceive and you just want to make it through to transfer or to the end of the month and then reassess. Like you don't always have to have the entire solution and everything mapped out. You can just make it to the next kind of milestone. And so I would say to myself, just make it to six weeks, just make it to six weeks, just make it to six weeks. And then I got to six weeks and I was like, just make it to eight weeks, just make it to eight weeks, just make it to eight weeks. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, like, no pressure if it was too hard. And it wasn't like I was exclusively like nursing and have giving pumped milk. I was at this point zero guilt about formula, but just trying to get to the next step of this journey and I was like just get to six weeks just get to six weeks just get to eight weeks just get to eight weeks and I went at six weeks to see a different lactation consultant so again like it's all of these lessons that I learned on my fertility journey that have come back and served me time and time again and not like if you feel like you won't get the answer that you are looking for from someone but if you feel like perhaps your values aren't aligned with someone. So, you know, the first lactation consultant was great and lovely. She was literally, she was amazing, but I knew that she didn't really approve of me having something done about Olivia's lip and tongue tie. And I really needed to have that done because we were all suffering in the family. And so I went to see a different lactation consultant for, should I keep persevering? What should I do now? And she was lovely. She confirmed for me that Olivia was putting on weight now. She was putting on enough weight that what I was doing was fine and that I just needed to look after myself. She gave me some new pointers of some positions to try. So I did that and yeah, I like I just kept trying. I thought, well, okay, let's go to eight weeks. Let's go to eight weeks. And then all of a sudden, and it literally was at about eight weeks, Olivia in the middle of the night and there's like a football hold position. I had her in football hold position and she drained a boob. And I was like, what? Did this just really happen? Is this really? And that kind of ended up being the position that for whatever reason worked for her the most at those beginning stages. And so that was what we did. And then I just kept trying and it definitely wasn't every feed and it definitely wasn't every time. But it kept getting better and better until probably by about 10 weeks, she was feeding like a champ. We were back to exclusively breastfeeding or we were at exclusively breastfeeding. And it was, you know, like it was all of a sudden it just started working in that sense. Her sleep had been totally screwed up because like of this whole debacle and often she was too tired while we were trying to get her fed you know, for us to properly manage going to sleep. But, you know, this was one hurdle that we had accomplished. And I went on to feed Olivia 
I wouldn't even say exclusively because I then I felt very traumatized by the pump. I like I did not want to use that pump ever again. When I had Chloe, I went back to work at 10 months and I used to sit in my office at lunchtime and pump for her so she could have my milk to take to daycare. This time around, fuck that. I had was so traumatized. I still am. I've got this brand new pump that was barely ever used and I did not want to touch that thing with a barge pole never again. So I had, again, zero guilt about giving her formula because like I just couldn't go near the pump. So when she went to daycare or if she went to my parents' house and sometimes, you know, like kids kind of operate in three-hour cycles, three to four-hour cycles of eating, sleeping, and as they get older, the staying awake and eating part gets longer and the sleeping part gets lower, but they kind of for ages operate on these three to four hour cycles. Like if they feed for half an hour, then that's only two and a half hours. So if I needed to get to the shops and get stuff done, I needed to be really quick. It did not feel like a break because I was just rushing and rushing. So I would be like, you know, if you could just take her for a feed and have her for a solid like four hours, I would be able to get so much done. She would have a feed there and she would have unashamedly formula when she went to her house. It was such a different experience to Chloe. And it just goes to show that every situation is different. Every baby's different. Unless we're in it, unless we have ourselves in that situation, we can never judge or say anything. And that was how I went with Olivia. But it wasn't like it was just so different to my experience with Chloe as well because Olivia was never that interested, to be honest. She was way more interested in food and she would as a like I don't know she would have been just five months and I'd be trying to eat food with her on my lap and she would grab my hand and try and put the food in her mouth it was so hard to try and keep her away from food whereas Chloe was hitting me she wasn't really interested in eating any food or didn't even really eat any food until about 10 months old she just wasn't interested in it and she would have happily nursed it was this beautiful calm experience it calmed her down she loved it Olivia, no man, she just wanted to eat. And when we were nursing, she just wanted to look around. Like she just wasn't that interested in sitting still. She still isn't that interested in sitting still. And so then, you know, we went as we went and we stopped at about, I want to say between 12 and 13 months. She just wasn't into it. We kind of hit that point. With Chloe, I felt like I stopped nursing Chloe because the fertility specialist and our obstetrician wanted me to so that I could get back into treatments in case it took a long time like it did the first time. Not that it took that long in comparison to other people, but they wanted me to get straight back on the horse as soon as Chloe was a year old, whereas Chloe would have probably nursed until she was about two years old. And I probably would have nursed her for that long, truth be told, because it was just a nice calming experience. If I wanted a rest in the day and to just sit down and have some peace and quiet, I could just sit down and she would nurse. Olivia, it just wasn't peaceful. <laughs> Chloe would be like running around, screaming at me, wanting to read a book. Olivia would be like, what's going on? What's going on? I'm not that interested. Like, hey, hey. So it just was a different experience. But as I said, if you need to change the people that you see, if you need to find someone who's more aligned with your values, do it. If you are struggling, get help. Get help, then get more help. Don't ever hesitate, especially when it's your mind. When, like, we don't hesitate. If we break a leg, 
We always go to the doctors. But for some reason, sometimes we sit and struggle with our minds for so long and feel like we have to keep suffering and you don't is the answer. And then the other thing that I wanted to say is just give yourself mini milestones, like just get to the end of the day, okay? Like if it's really hard, just get to the end of the day and then take a breather and then see how much longer you want to go for. That is my journey. I am sending you all love whatever stage you are in and I'm really pleased to be able to bring a few of the stories of, I guess, what life after infertility feels like and certainly not to say that infertility is not part of my story anymore and that I don't identify as an infertility warrior but certainly life after that initial struggle or life on the other side of that particular struggle. Thanks for tuning in and I hope to catch you at the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Fertility Warriors podcast with me, your host, Robin Birkin. If you would like more tools, resources and courses to help you survive your journey, please head to robinburkin.com. And if you like this podcast, please share it with others. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.